Well, um, Derek said to take as long as I need, so we'll be done by dinner. <laughs> so hang tight. Now, if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to the book of John, the Gospel of John, as we John chapter 19. I'm thankful to, to, to be with the saints here at Devonshire, and uh, kind of just felt like home coming here, which is always a good thing. So uh, meeting some of you. John chapter 19. We will uh, read the first 16 verses there. These are the words of God. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, but by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made an effort to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbath. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest said, We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we ask now that your spirit would open our hearts as we open your word. We know that our hearts are tempted to ignore your word and instead believe the word of man. I pray, Lord, that you would afflict comfortable and comfort the afflicted, lest we lean on our own understanding. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So as I understand it, you have been working through the Gospel of John, working your way through the book in conjunction with the church calendar. We are just a couple of weeks away from Easter, Resurrection Sunday, so it is quite appropriate that we spend time considering the events leading up to the resurrection, especially focusing in on the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, Pastor Derek walked through the end of John 18, and so you already have the context of what we'll talk about today. But for those who don't remember or weren't here, the end of John 18 tells us the story of Jesus coming before Pilate. Pilate asked the Jewish leaders for an accusation, and instead of building a case, they went ahead with the kangaroo court, falsely accusing Jesus and twisting what he said. Pilate interviews Jesus further, asking if he's king of Jews, and Jesus cryptically uh, responds to him. 
Pilate then presses Jesus some more, trying to get Jesus to indict himself. Jesus then explains that his kingdom isn't from this world, though it is indeed for this world. The kingdom of God does not function like the kingdoms of men, as we'll see today. If it did, Jesus would have amassed an army to try to use political and military force. But this isn't how Jesus intends to rule. Pilate asks again in chapter 18, verse 37, So you are a king. Jesus responds, Will you say correctly that I am a king? Jesus continues his response, For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. As a result of this uh, preliminary investigation, Pilate found no guilt in Jesus, but used it as an opportunity to test the crowd and test their rigor. How bad do they want Jesus dead? Would they rather have the insurrectionist Barabbas, or would they rather have Jesus? One final chance to repent of their rejection of the Messiah, and they fail. They would rather have a known criminal among their community over against Jesus. And here it is we find our text this morning. And so I just want to walk through it quickly, make sure you have your Bibles open, and just summarize it, and then we'll unpack it some more. We see in chapter 19, verse 1, that Pilate had Jesus scourged. This type of beating would many times kill a normal man, and oftentimes it was used to get a confession out of him. After the beating, the soldiers made a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, even wrapping him up in a purple robe. Verse 2. Their goal was to mock Jesus, to mock our Lord. Their mockery continues in verse 3 when they slap him in the face and shout, Hail, King of the Jews. Pilate brings Jesus out after the beating and declares his judgment again. He says, I find no guilt in him. Wearing the purple robe and the crown of thorns, Pilate says, Behold the man, verses 4 and 5. Not happy with Pilate's, Pilate's verdict, the leaders cried out, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate says again, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Verse 6. The Jews, who had at least some semblance of decency and order, sarcasm there, claim that they have a law, and that law gives the death penalty to blasphemers, which is a true statement, verse 7. It's funny how the religious leaders now want to appeal to some sort of pious behavior. Pilate was even more afraid, verse 8, and he examined Jesus some more, asking him, where is he from? Where are you from? Verse 9, Jesus didn't respond. So Pilate ups his game, claiming absolute authority over Jesus, of the authority to put him to death or release him. In verse 10, Jesus clarifies in verse 11 that the only authority Pilate has, indeed Caesar has, is because God gives it. Men have no authority that is pulled out of thin air. After indicting the Jewish leaders as having great sin in verse 11, Pilate made another effort to release Jesus in verse 12, but the Jews wouldn't have it. They threaten Pilate, saying that if, if he releases Jesus, he would be at odds with Caesar, because Jesus is a threat to Caesar. Again, they speak truth. Pilate gives himself over to this fear. He brings Jesus out. He sits down on the judgment seat there in verse 13. 
Pilate presents their king on the day of preparation for Passover at noontime, verse 14. And the crowd intensifies their crucifixion rhetoric more in verse 15. Their bloodlust has now gone full throttle. Pilate asks for a final time, Shall I crucify your king? Instead of saying yes, their guiltiness takes yet another descent into even further and deeper debauchery. We have no king but Caesar. Rejection of King Jesus has been made plain and final. Jesus was then handed over to be crucified, verse 16. So that's our passage. Let's dig in some more. The heart of this passage is an issue of authority. It's an issue of authority. Who's in charge? Who is the ultimate, the ultimate transcendent sovereign authority? Who is that person? Where does ultimacy and objectivity come from? Pilate claimed to have total power and authority over Jesus. That's, that was his claim. In other words, Pilate claimed sovereignty. That's what he claimed. He claimed ultimacy. He claimed in front of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who spoke the earth into existence, stains its existence every single day. Pilate claimed deity, ultimacy, finality, transcendence, supremacy, all of it. The buck stops here sort of sovereignty that puts everything else underneath it to shame. That was Caesar. That was Pilate. Also behind this passage and the surrounding passages is a battle of worldviews. Here stands Jesus, the true and only sovereign king of all the universe, and he's standing before a man who thinks he's king of the universe. What could possibly go wrong? The passage before us drips of irony. The passage before us drips with all sorts of irony. Here stands Jesus, the innocent Sinless man, the one about to be crucified on a Roman cross, and while on trial, Jesus flips the whole thing upside down, and he puts his judge and his accusers on trial instead. What's the reality? Pilate does not have unending power. Pilate does not have limitless power. Caesar does not have unending power. One standing before these ego-driven, obdurately foul people is the one who has unending, full legislative power. The judge of the universe is being sentenced by this ramshackle despot. Notice the twist here. There was a twist in the charges that were brought before um, Pilate. Jesus made himself son of God, they say. And here's the twist. He's a king. And we all know that kings are a threat to other rulers. We all know how Herod responded when he had heard from the wise men that there was a king. Let me go find him so I can worship him. Obviously having motives that were ill. At just about every single turn between the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers and even Pilate himself, at every turn, they were speaking truth about Jesus. He was and he is the Son of God. He was and is the King. He was and is the man, the second Adam. He deserved the purple robe and he deserves a crown. It is true, it is true that rival kings oppose Caesar. That is a fact. All of this that was said was true, every bit of it. They said things that were frank, that were upfront, but they didn't know what they were claiming. But in order to get Jesus crucified, the religious leaders had to be more loyal to Caesar than Pilate. 
Pilate was a man stuck between a rock and a hard place. If he lets Jesus go, he risks there being a Jewish uprising, which wasn't uncommon during this time period. Now, if that were to happen, then Rome would find out, and Pilate would then be put to death for his incompetence. And this, too, happened to other um, regional rulers as well. So what must he do? Now, Pilate tries to push Jesus off to the religious leaders, but they would have none of it. They wanted Rome to do their dirty work. They needed Roman soldiers, the, the sort of the, the nay seals of the Roman army. They needed them to be sure that Jesus' life would end. And in order for that to happen, they needed to remind Pilate who the true king was, the true ruler, Caesar. They compromised. Their compromised position has now been made abundantly clear. The attitude of the Jewish leaders towards Jesus showed up in the parable of the money usage in Luke 19. In Luke 19.4, the servants said to the noblemen, the noblemen being Jesus in the parable, we do not want this man to reign over us. This statement right here, the foundation of their rejection of Jesus Christ. He's a king and we don't want him. They didn't want him, and the only way to get rid of him was to strong-arm Pilate into assassinating this would-be rebel rouser. And saying that they had no king but Caesar, the religious leaders were rejecting God incarnate, God in the flesh, and embracing a pagan emperor. That's the transaction that happens here. When men reject Christ, they embrace tyranny every time. When men reject Jesus Christ, they embrace tyranny. You cannot throw God away and then suddenly find yourself without a God. No, you leave the creator God, you leave the creator God and then you worship the creation. It's that simple. It's either Christ or it's tyranny. It's either Jesus or it's paganism. And the religious leaders made their choice. The reason Pilate eventually gave Jesus over to the leader's wishes uh, for him to be crucified was because Pilate feared Caesar more than God. Pilate feared Caesar more than God. He yielded to the will of Israel because of a fear of man issue. The leaders not only rejected Christ because they wanted him far away from them, they also incurred all sorts of problems, namely a future war with Rome that would inevitably leave Jerusalem and her temple utterly destroyed. Needless to say, there was a tremendous amount of things at stake. The battle between worldviews was... Now, what became utterly intolerable for the religious leaders was the fact that while they were ready and available to believe in God, they refused, for one second, they refused to consider if what Jesus was saying was true. And because of it, they wanted a God on their terms. As long as God stayed far from them and did not come near, doesn't get any more nearer than the in incarnation, they, as long as that happened, they could be the ones who could rule in God's name. The rejection of the incarnation was fueled by a lust for power. When they were in roughshod over Jesus, it was a draconian power play. Think about it. There's a reason, there is a reason that Jesus was sent to Pilate and crucified and not the acting high priest of Israel. The real threat to the kingdoms of men is posed by the one who subverts those kingdoms by service. What did Jesus say? You want to be 
greatest, you have to be a servant of all. You want to be first, you have to be last. The real threat is posed by the one who subverts the system through a decentralized service, not the one who reproduces the collectivist power play-oriented state. That's why Jesus hung on the cross and not Caiaphas. That's why Jesus went to Pilate and not the religious leaders. The religious leaders simply could not tolerate a God who came near to them and washed their feet. It was unthinkable. This was not at all a God who God is, so they thought. Instead of being served by Jesus, they wanted the power play. They wanted the kangaroo court. They wanted God on their terms. They wanted Pilate's power to crush this Jesus. And here's the thing, and this is where I'm going to put this right in your lap this morning. Truth is hated by men who prefer their sin instead of God. Truth is hated by men who prefer their sin instead of God. And here's why. Truth is something that imposes. It is. It disrupts and it divides the fallen world. And here, truth is a person and truth is crucified. And what we must not do is circumvent this reality. You see, Jesus Christ messes with you. He messes with you. He messes with kings and he messes with peasants. He messes with your idolatry and he messes with your pretend kingdom. He disrupts false authorities and that's because his kingdom is ultimate. His kingdom is what's sovereign. Truth and authority, that's what I'm calling this message, truth and authority are the main ingredients to the recipe of the kingdom of God. That's why men hate truth. They want their sin and they want it on their own selfish platter. When you reject the truth about God, you are doing so because you want authority on your terms. When you reject the truth about God, you're doing it because you are motivated by something. And that motivation is you want authority on your terms. And that's why we have the current debacle going around us. Truth must be rejected in order to have some self-illusional authority. The reason that truth is not tolerated in our current culture is because truth has consequences. Truth has consequences. If one could affirm truth in his head and still live however he would, right, fallen sinners would always take that option. They would always take that option. But since this is impossible and truth is tied to morality, anything said in our day and age that relates to truth is deemed intolerant and completely intolerable. So you can go back to the Greeks, Greek mythology, and you can go to their idea of spirit versus matter, right? Matter is ultimately meaningless, and spirit is what is good. Or you can fast forward to 21st century America and find that truth is ultimately subjective, ultimately relative. If it's true for you, that doesn't mean that it's true for me. And in an age of, of relativity, truth becomes incredibly dangerous for the status quo. And what we must not do is try to loosen the blow. The fact of the matter is this. Truth became a man. This man was and is the judge of the universe. He stood before blasphemous religious leaders and a pagan governor. And while they put him on trial, they failed to realize that they were the ones on trial. They were the ones on trial. When we reject truth as revealed to us in Christ... 
we then have lives of moral anarchy and social dysfunction. I'll say that again. When we reject truth as it is revealed to us in Christ and in his word, we then live lives of moral anarchy and social dysfunction. Truth is thus neglected. Justice anymore has become completely arbitrary. There's a reason in the law of God that um, God warned, warned Israel the judges are not to take a bribe. And what do we have now? Justice becomes arbitrary and salvation is pushed aside. And this is why our culture is a current, it's a blender that's been left on too long and someone keeps adding garbage to it. What people today need more than anything else is truth. People today do not need therapeutic niceties. People today need truth. They do not need therapeutic niceties. And the sad fact is this, evangelicalism today has exchanged the Ten Commandments and replaced them with one commandment, thou shalt be nice. This is why truth is being assailed. Listen, truth has a backbone. Truth has a backbone. Which means that since we are Christians, and since we have the corner on the mark of truth, right, Jesus said in John 17, 17, your word is truth. He didn't say your word is it leads to truth or whatever. His word is truth. Since we have the corner on the market of truth, we are going to be deemed a menace to society. And any time, any time you adamantly object to, to the prevailing sins and abject social customs of the day, you are at risk of being called a bigot and a not-so-nice person, which, incidentally, if that's all you're called, consider yourself blessed, have been called far worse. In our fallen world, the power of the lie takes center stage. The whisper of the serpent to Adam and Eve marches down through time, and it is here with us today. The same Adam believed the religious leaders employed. And yet truth, truth defeats death by being resurrected. Here's the beauty of all of this. Christ conquers the world by letting the world conquer him. Christ conquers the world by letting the world conquer him. How could your bloodlust possibly be satiated when the man that you intend to murder can come out the other side of death in resurrection glory? How can you do it? And what did the Apostle Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8? If the rulers of this age had understood what they were doing, what it is they were doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If Pilate knew what he was doing, he wouldn't have allowed Jesus to be beaten. If, if the Roman soldiers knew what they were doing, they would have found Jesus a crown made of gold, not thorns. If the religious leaders knew what they were doing, they wouldn't have compromised their false religion by rejecting God in the flesh, but instead they would have bowed before him. This is the wisdom of our God. When Jesus came, he invaded darkness. When Jesus came... He invaded enemy-occupied territory. He was planted by God to bring regeneration power to man. That was the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. But this does not go without a clash of worldviews. It doesn't happen without some sort of social fiasco. Jesus Christ 
brought truth and authority to the earth, and he was crucified. Let that sink in. What is it that we bring to the world as a result? What do we bring to the world? We bring a crucified Savior. That's what we bring. That's our message. That's what we have to proclaim. We don't need to, <laughs> we don't need to form a committee to try and come up with some sort of gimmick to reach a dying world. Jesus doesn't need you to be cute, church. He needs you to be faithful in proclaiming him. That's what he needs. And the cross is foolishness. It's absolute foolishness to the world. But that's not a bug. That's a design feature. So don't mess with it. Stop it. Don't mess with the gospel. The world needs a crucified Savior. So don't obfuscate that. Don't truncate it. Preach it. And I want to point out one final thing in this passage. Look at verse 5. Jesus then came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, Behold the man. Have you ever asked the question, Why a crown of thorns? Sure, yeah, it was meant to hurt. That's the easy answer. Why thorns? Why did they... Fashioned together a crown of thorns. And why does Pilate say, behold the man? When you think of thorns, you ought to think of the Garden of Eden. Clearly, John is making a theological point here. What's his point? Thorns and thistles were what God used to bring his curse to creation. Right? When, when Adam and Eve sinned, thorns and thistles became a reality for them and us. The thorns that, that God gave to creation as a curse, Jesus had placed on his head. He wore the curse. Rebels and covenant-breaking pagans put that curse as a crown on Christ's head. And one thing is very clear. This king is taking on the curse on fallen man and in his death and resurrection, he's now bringing for the new creation. The second Adam. That's why he says, behold man. Here is your Adam. Here is the second Adam. He is a king. And he is the type of king that makes his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The undoing of the old. We just sang about that, right? The undoing of the old. Curse creation. All of that is now falling on Jesus. The creator who made thorns is now wearing them. And instead of working the ground to eliminate the thorns by the sweat of Jesus' brow, he eliminates them by the blood of his brow. This Jesus took the curse of the very men who put those thorns on his head. They didn't know what they were doing. Had they known what they were doing, they would have figured out something else. This is truth. This is authority. Which means that you, dear Christian, now you have hope. Now you have hope. You can rejoice with John, who also wrote 1 John 5, 4. And he said there that we overcome the world, this system of evil. We overcome it by what? Our faith. But not just any faith and not just any person. It's not what faith, but faith in who? The Lord Jesus Christ, who has come to conquer the world. We overcome by faith. We do not overcome the world by something other than faith. Truth is... And authority has been given to you. The question is, what will you do with it? How will you follow Jesus' example in being salt and light in a place full of rotting meat and darkness? One thing is for sure. You must embrace Christ. You must 
You cannot push him off like Pilate, attempting to wash one's hands from having anything to do with Jesus. You can't push him around like the Jewish leaders who would, have, would prefer their own false religion. You can't do any of that. You cannot ultimately suppress the truth of God. You can try to do it in unrighteousness, or you can just render to him. And that's really what it's all about. Resistance to this truth, resistance to this authority, resistance to the kingdom of God is ultimately futile. You can run, but you can't hide. Lay down your arms, turn to this Jesus, and bend your knee to his rule. He bought this world with his blood. Guess what? You have to deal with it. That's our truth, and that's our authority. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have gathered this Lord's Day to, to ultimately magnify your Son, our Lord, Jesus the King. And we confess that at times we have tried to water down your truth in an attempt to make it more palatable to the spirit of the age. Father, we repent of this. We also confess that at times we have tried to put off the yoke of your authority, citing reasons like, selfishness and idolatry we repent of this too God I pray that your spirit would convict us this morning convict us of sin righteousness and judgment and not just convict us but empower us embolden us grant us the wisdom to discern your your truth and authority each and every day I ask for your blessing and the saints here father I'm thankful for the opportunity to minister and ask God that your word would not return void, but that the witness here and the witness of the saints would magnify your name and make an impact for this community for the cause of the kingdom of God. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.